All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather here together on the Lord's Day, Father. I pray that you would uh, open our ears, that we would be attentive, and that you would guide me as I teach, uh, that I would teach nothing but the truth, and that we would all learn and be edified. It's in the name of your Son that I pray. Amen. So just as a note, uh, we are recording this uh, lesson for the uh, particular Baptist podcast today. So if you don't want to end up on that, don't say anything. (laughs) But uh, anyway, today we'll be going over uh, chapter 13 in the confession, following along with uh, Waldron's questions. Chapter 13 is on uh, the doctrine of sanctification. So uh, question number one is a given outline of chapter 13. So uh, the outline, there are three paragraphs in this, uh, in this chapter. Uh, the first paragraph deals with the description of sanctification. And uh, there's two parts to that, um, definitive and progressive. So definitive sanctification is the idea that at conversion, God has made us sanctified, period, end stop, definitively. Uh, If we are saved, we have already been sanctified, in a sense, by God. And progressive or ongoing sanctification, both terms mean the same thing, is the sanctification that uh, we are supposed to grow in and increase in as we walk through the Christian life. So that is a sanctification that we can actually grow in. So there's definitive sanctification that one time happens, we are sanctified. There's also sanctification that we are currently growing and increasing in. Um, then the rest of the, uh, chapter, the outline is the distinctives of sanctification. So paragraph two deals with the struggle with sin and paragraph three deals with the progress in grace. So I will read, uh, paragraph one, and then I will have other people read paragraph two and three. So paragraph one of chapter 13. They, are, they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit, created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So the key phrase there is, are also farther sanctified. So that's getting into the uh, distinction I was talking about earlier. You were, when you were effectually called, regenerated, and given a new spirit, sanctified. But you were also farther sanctified as you, uh, by the Holy Spirit, live the Christian life and gain more and more Uh, victory over sin. Um, Would somebody mind reading paragraph two for me? This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never complete in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual, irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the desires of the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. 
So for everybody who wasn't able to read along with that, spirit there is capital S. It's not merely our spirit, it is the Holy Spirit. And that's uh, very important because ultimately it is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us that is waging war against the flesh and vice versa. The flesh wages war against the spirit. Uh, that's going to be important as we study sanctification because ultimately it is by the Holy Spirit that we are sanctified. Um, could I get somebody to read paragraph three? So as this paragraph says, uh, we're going to walk through the Christian life and it's not always going to be easy. And there will be times in which sin does prevail over us. But over the long arc of the Christian life, we should see more and more victory over sin. That's uh, characteristic of someone who is a Christian. And that's the sanctification that we're looking for, that there's more and more victory over sin. So moving on to question two, what is the biblical meaning of sanctification? Is this consistent with its popular usage? So the biblical meaning of sanctification, it's just another word for being made holy. They're, they're interchangeable in that regard, holiness and sanctification. And the word holy just means being set apart to God. Um, this is in contrast with more of the uh, mainstream, like how you would use it here in popular usage, where sanctification just means to grow less and less sinful and more and more righteous. Obviously, these things are related. If you're going to grow more and more holy, you will grow more and more righteous, but they're not quite identical. And that's an important distinction uh, to maintain. Um, uh, as, a, as a way of demonstrating this, and I believe I'm paraphrasing Paul Washer here. I can't remember exactly where I heard it. But um, if God is righteous, what does it mean that he's also holy? Because God is called holy and he's also called righteous. These things can't therefore be synonyms. They're used differently. Um, when God is described as holy, it's saying that he is other. He is separate. He is not common. He is not to be profaned. That's what it means to be holy. Um, so for us, it's the same thing. If we're, or if we're called to be holy, that means we're not to be common and profane like the things of this world. We're to be separate. And in a very real sense, we are not. God has made it so that if we are in Christ, we are not. Um, those who are sanctified will live more righteously than if we were not sanctified. That's an aspect of it, but it's not in the entirety. It's, it's, you have been set apart from the world. You're no longer common or profane. Um, and at this point, I, I do want to make sure that the, uh, the distinction between justification and sanctification is maintained uh, because the world also often will not see a difference between these things. They'll say that any works righteousness religion will say in order to be right with God, you've got to be inwardly just. You've got to be inwardly righteous. That's what makes you right with God. And um, that is not that you're missing a very important distinction because no one can be right with God that way. In order to be right with God, you would have to be perfectly righteous from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. And obviously, we've all already failed that and we're going to continue to fail that. So um, it's important we maintain that distinction. Um, we are right with God purely by the work of his son. 
by believing in him, we are positionally righteous. We are accounted as righteous, even if we're not perfectly righteous in of ourselves. So justification will cause our sanctification. If we are justified, God's spirit will be in us and we will work to increase our sanctification, but it is not the basis of our right standing with God. Question number three, what acts of God form the foundation of ongoing sanctification? So I'll, I'll pose that question to the audience. Um, anybody want to take a stab at that? What works of God form the foundation of our ongoing sanctification? Just simply, let us make man in our own image. Genesis, Genesis 1, 6. When God is making man in his own image, he wants man to be more like God. That's true. For the person that's um, obviously fallen in Adam, what forms the basis of our ongoing sanctification? Ben. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Waldron lists uh, four things. Regeneration, effectual calling, union with Christ, and justification. Um, And obviously all those things are related. But um, I definitely want to bring out regeneration and union with Christ. If we're regenerate, we have received a new nature, and that new nature doesn't like the things that it used to like. It doesn't like sin, so it's going to try to not sin, and uh, it's going to desire more and more victory over sin. So that new nature is something that's pushing us forward to grow in sanctification. Um, In union with Christ, if we are in union with Christ by faith, we receive the benefits of being in him. God chastens us like we're his sons because we are. Um, So he's helping us to grow in that regard. We receive the spirit of his son, and it's by his spirit that we're able to put to death the deeds of the body. So just the benefits of being in Christ are the foundation for us growing in holiness. We're never going to be able to grow in holiness without, um, without God. It's just not possible. All right. Question four, prove from the Bible that believers are definitively, or sorry, definitely sanctified. So I've got a couple of verses here that I need read. Could somebody read for us 1 Corinthians 6, 11? I can start calling names. <laughs> And you'll note that's in the past tense. You were sanctified. Just like you were justified, it's a past tense thing. We're not expecting to be increased or we're not expecting to be justified in the future. You were sanctified in the past. There is a real sense in which you were sanctified in the past definitively. Um, could somebody read 1 Corinthians 1 2? So you'll note, Paul is describing the church of Corinth as those who are sanctified, present tense. There's a sense in which you can say, I am sanctified, not merely I'm going to be sanctified or I'm going to increase in my sanctification, but I am sanctified right now. And there's actually 
another interesting uh, point in that verse, Paul refers to those in Corinth as saints. What does it mean to be a saint? Well, saint, um, just like uh, sanctified, it has its root from holiness, right? It means holy one. Um, so if you are a saint, then you are holy. Um, so at that point, I'd like to prove that indeed all Christians should be called saints. Could somebody read Acts 26.10? And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's Yeah, that's fine. Um, this is Paul describing his previous life, life before he was converted. Um, and he is saying he locked up the saints in prison. Well, you go back and who was he locking up in prison? Just, just the Christians... Exactly. The Christians living in Jerusalem. So he's just referring to the Christians plainly as saints. And this is important because um, some religious traditions will have saints as some sort of super class of Christian or some class of Christian that can't be identified until after they're dead. But no, we can, as of this moment, in reality, refer to ourselves as saints. And if we are saints, by definition, we're holy. That's what the word means. Um, and just one more verse, which I'll, I'll read it. Um, Ephesians 5, 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. So he's addressing the Ephesian church and saying, don't do the things that are unbecoming saints. Why? Because they're saints. All right. Question five. What two errors are refuted by the doctrine of definitive sanctification? So the two errors that uh, Waldron goes into are positional sanctification and a merely progressive sanctification. Of the two, I think positional sanctification is more of what we see in our current context in America. Um, positional sanctification is the idea that just like we're justified apart from any righteousness we have, uh, we're positionally justified, if you want to use that term. We're also positional, positionally sanctified. God treats us as if we're sanctified, although we're not really. Um, and that's very problematic in the American church because you have people going around claiming to be Christians or people treating them like Christians when they bear no marks of holiness whatsoever. If you are a Christian, you have been definitively sanctified in some sense, so we would expect you to behave holy. And I have a J.C. Ryle quote here that um, I think is helpful. If you show me a man deliberately living an unholy and licentious life and yet boasting that his sins are forgiven, I answer, he is under a ruinous delusion and is not forgiven at all. I would not believe he is forgiven if an angel from heaven affirmed it. And I charge you not to believe it too. Pardon of sin and love of sin are like oil and water. They will never go together. All who are washed in the blood of Christ are also sanctified by the spirit of Christ. So if you have, obviously Christians fall into sin. We're not, we're not sinless perfectionists here. But if you see someone who has no desire to not sin, you should not treat that person as a believer. Um, if there's no manifestation of holiness whatsoever in your Christian walk, then 
you're not you're not a believer. Um, and the modern church allows people to go to hell uh, that should have had warning about this. And that's 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 absolutely um, it's terrible. Um, may it never be that way with us. Uh, let us be willing in love to warn those that don't ma- bear the mark of sanctification that that's the path they're headed on so that they might turn, repent, and be saved. Um, the second um, error that this refutes is a merely progressive sanctification. And this is the idea that upon conversion, we start at 0% sanctification, and then we build up throughout our Christian lives. And obviously, as we've seen, that's not the case. Ben. Yeah, and that's that's the core distinction there. Because both the unbeliever and the believer can feel bad about their sin, but why? Why is the reason? Is it because what I've done is unrighteous, or is it because well I'm going to have consequence for this? Rowan. Yes. But it's like we 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 have it where the Lord Jesus looks directly at us and most of the time you don't need to be taught, so to speak, by other people because it's not them. It's you it's not there for you because you're worried about your Lord. So the Lord Jesus looked directly at Peter. No one needed to rebuke him except for him. That's uh, that's kind of the pattern of the leader. Mm-hmm. It's the only time you ever feel bad, it's kind of like Amen. Yep. Um, yeah. So, merely progressive sanctification. We start at zero. We work our way up. As we've seen, that's just it's just wrong. All believers are, at least in some sense, already sanctified when they are believers. God has made them holy. Um, at this point, I do want to at least bring up some proof text uh, for uh, ongoing sanctification, because we've seen that there's um, there's definitive sanctification. So I'll read from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And the very God peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to the church of the Thessalonians. And uh, he's saying that God would sanctify them wholly. Obviously, if they've already been sanctified wholly, there's no point in asking for that. But this is showing that while we are sanctified in a sense, there's still an ongoing sanctification that needs to encompass all of our being uh, before we see the Lord. All right. Question six. What is the key passage with regard to definitive sanctification? Uh, so that's actually going to be Romans 6. Um, Waldron has it as Romans 6, 1 through 11. 
I get somebody to read Romans 6, 1 through 14, I think through 14 actually even adds more light onto it. Yes. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that as many of baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done with it, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who, who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we live and die with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he dies to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead and gain to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you may that you should obey, obey in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, and you are not under law, but under grace. Thank you, Tracy. So question seven, we'll unpack what was going on in uh, Romans six. What is the significance of the phrase, we died to sin in Romans six, one, one through 11. So obviously this doesn't mean that we are no longer able to sin. It's not dead to sin in that sense. A, because the rest of the New Testament indicates that Christians still sin. So um, it can't mean that. Also, you'll note in verses 9 and 10, Christ is described also from being dead to sin. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So the question is, how is it that Christ also dies to sin when Christ never sinned in the first place? Um, it obviously can't mean that he's died to sin in the sense that he's no longer sinning because he wasn't sinning in the first place. Exactly. Um, Exactly. That's why you're to regard or to yourself. 
not to contend for the thing until you make it so to speak, but you are to count yourself as dead. What happened to him happened to you. Yep, for all those that are in Christ, their sin has been dealt with. And that's ultimately, that leads us into what, what's actually going on here. To be dead to sin is to be dead to the power of sin. Sin no longer has the same relationship to us. It's no longer our master. Jesus tells us in uh, John that he who commits sin is a slave to sin. But if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Um, so sin once had a power over us. Um, we, we loved our sin. We sought it, um, whereas now we we don't seek it. It isn't able to entice us in that way, and um, uh, we're able to actually be free from it. We're actually able to grow in victory over it. Um, let's see. Also, again, it's it's in the past tense. We're not dying to sin, as Rowan said. Uh, there's a very real sense in which we are dead to sin, even if it doesn't always feel this way. Even if you do feel like sin has power over you, well, ultimately, it doesn't, and you just need to remember that. Matt, I like what Aldrin uh, said in Romans six two regarding this. He said, "Paul's answer is that it is not possible for a justified man to go on sinning. How shall we who died to sin live in it? The word how implies the impossibility of a Christian still living in sin." Exactly. Yes. So, um, question eight, discuss the relation of the indicative and the imperative in the Christian life. So we started touching upon it in that last question, but can anybody even tell me what is an indicative and an imperative, at least in this context? Exactly. Indicative indicates something. It's a statement of fact. You are dead to sin. An imperative is a command. Act as if you're dead to sin is the command there. So um, the question here is, if we have a statement that we are dead to sin, why do we then need to be commanded to let not sin reign over us? Shouldn't we already not be sinning if we're dead to sin? Does anybody want to take a stab at that? So ultimately, we are we are dead to sin, and that should lead us to obey the command to sin no more. But sin is trying to make you its slave again. The devil is trying to convince you that, no, you're actually still under his power and um, bound to obey his commands. He's trying his hardest to make sure to make you think that you're under sin so that you obey him. And uh, you have to remember that you have been set free from the bondage to sin. And that's going to lead you to be able to 
um, defeat sin. Um, you can, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, as Romans 8.13 says. Uh, if you are in Christ, the Christian life will not perfect, uh, can and should have victory over sin. Um, yeah. Um, so it, And that's, that's a very practical application, because oftentimes we do feel like we're trapped in sin. But remembering, no, I am dead to sin frees you up. You might not have victory in that exact moment, but it does free you up to not despair and continue progressing forward. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Ben and then Pam. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's not even necessarily that you want to do it. It's just so habitual. You're not even really thinking when you do it. And then later it's like, oh, really wish I hadn't done that. All right. Uh, question nine. What are the two directions in which the Christian must exert himself in the Christian life? Why is such two directional effort important? So the two directions that I got from Waldron are sin mortified. So you're mortifying your sin and grace cultivated. Um, and I've got a couple of verses uh, to illustrate these. Could I get somebody to read Romans 6.13? Could I get somebody to read uh, 2 Corinthians 7 1? Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And then I will read Ephesians 4 22 through 25. That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which is after God, created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speaking every man, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So there's the idea of putting off these things. Don't do these things. That's, that's an aspect of it. But there's also the idea of grace being cultivated, that you need to appeal to God for this help. Because ultimately, we cannot do this on our own. If we could do it on our own, um, we, could be, uh, we could be saved on our own. We wouldn't have need, needed Christ to come. But obviously, uh, we do need Christ to come. And ultimately, uh, I want to um, 
say that we're not hyper Calvinists. Um, we do believe that God actually uses means. He uses means in our salvation. That means is calling us to faith. He's going to use means in our sanctification. You can't just sit around and expect God to sanctify you. Um, God uses means and you need to be working on it in of yourself. You need to be, uh, well, we'll get into some basic activities in the next question, but it's not merely a passive thing. Uh, question 10, what are the basic activities God requires of us in ongoing sanctification? Does anybody want to take a stab at that? Being here. Being here? Yes, yes. That's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. As as Pastor Steve is uh, fond of telling us, the number one thing that uh, he sees leads to greater and greater sanctification is being here consistently on a Sunday, in both the equipping hour and church and fellowship meal. Being around other Christians is going to grow you in sanctification. It's the means by which God has told us to live the Christian life. We're supposed to be gathered in a local church. So to ignore his means, you're already in trouble. But there are believers that will pray for you. There are believers that will correct you when you sin, when you sin, even if you don't realize you're doing it. And there are believers there that will bear your burdens with you. And that's immeasurably valuable. Ben? Exactly. Yep. We do, we do learn by example. So having a good example is helpful. The other uh, ones that I have here are uh, planning to avoid occasions of sin. Obviously, if you think you're being in a certain situation is going to cause you to sin, don't go there. It's fairly straightforward. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Learning, reading, listening, studying. Um, obviously, staying in the word will renew your mind so that if you find yourself in a situation that is tempting, like you're thinking about it the right way. Um, learning from the example of godly Christians um, by reading, studying their lives. So obviously, that'll be very helpful in how you should live your life. And then there's also watching and prayer, um, being watchful. We're not to go through this life like haphazardly and then when sin comes upon us we're caught by surprise you should be active and um, purposeful in how you live your life and then ultimately prayer Um, we're not able to do this by ourselves and it's foolish to not call upon God who has all power and has given us all the blessings in the spiritual uh, in the heavenly places to not ask for that to help us defeat sin because he is able to do it So we should always be in prayer. All right. Question 11. Are we sanctified by faith alone? Anybody want to try and answer that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Faith is the root. You are not going to be sanctified without faith. 
because ultimately, once again, uh, if we could do it without faith, un, uh, we would not need God. We would not re- need regeneration. We would not need the preaching of the word. Yes. Do you have something, Ron? Yeah, there's a number of scriptures that I commonly point out where, you know, the addiction imperative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you look at the scriptures, it teaches a lot. First half is almost entirely addictive, second half imperative. And that continues on in Paul's writings. It constantly happens that he prefaces you before he's going to tell you what you must do, he's going to tell you what Christ has done what that means for you. Well, you got you also like second figure. One through five through nine, where he tells you that if you're lacking fruit, you're trying to reverse your sins. John tells you that whoever has the hope of, you know, moral and final sanctification, purifies himself. If you don't have that hope, you don't purify yourself. In Titus 3, verses 4 to 7, the clearest pronouncement of the gospel that I, I think you will have in all the scriptures. And then in verse 8, after calling that out, after saying it's by grace, it's mercy, it's not by works that you have done. He saved you, he purified you. Then he said, This is a faithful saying, these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain the works. In other words, you want people to be sanctified, to live a holy life, you must pronounce the gospel constantly. Amen. So, yes, at conversion, we are made as we've made definitively sanctified, and that was by faith, obviously. Um, and even our prosecution of the Christian life, we are continuing in faith, and we will be uh, sanctified through that faith. Although, as opposed to justification, there is, uh, which is passive on our part, we believe and receive, uh, we are accredited righteousness. There is a little bit more effort, if you want to describe it as that way, uh, on the Christian life in terms of sanctification, as we were talking about Um you know, not giving opportunities to sin, being purposeful. Um, uh, I wanted to read Second Timothy uh, twenty two twenty one. Excuse me. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, the latter being what he just described, uh, what Paul just described, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So, if anyone cleanses himself, he will be sanctified. So obviously there's a sense in which we are cleansing ourselves. Obviously that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not appropriate to talk about you cleansing yourself apart from uh, God. God is ultimately the reason that you are cleansed, but you are cleansing yourself. It's also appropriate to talk about it in that sense. And uh, that is to the result of your sanctification. Now, this wasn't a question on the sheet, but, oh, did you have a question, Ben? Yes. Yep. 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 Good works have to be done for the right reason in order to be good. And if you're not doing it for the right reason, 
then they're not good. Pastor Steve. Yeah, we always we typically think of justifying faith, resting, trusting, <clears throat> sanctifying faith, though resting, trusting in that which is given to us by Christ. It is a faith that works. Yes. It's waging war. Yes. A little bit, you know, no illustration is perfect, but think of the war we're waging against, say, COVID. The government deposits money and accounts for states to wage war. Again, no politics. Everybody's going, ah. But but they're using something that's been deposited deposited and given to wage war. And the same with us that are in Christ. Mm -hmm. Something has been given given to us in Christ, and we are waging war. Yep. Do you have something, Travis? Yeah, no, I was saying, you know, sanctification is nothing more than growing in godliness as we work out our faith in faith. And if you segregate it from that faith, it's no longer sanctification, it's just filthy rags. Yeah. Yep. Perfect way to put it. Is sanctification synergistic? Somewhat. (laughs) So in the same way we are responsible for faith in Christ, yet it's a work of the Spirit. Yes. Yeah. Would that be the same way we are responsible? It's, it, it's ultimately, it depends on how you look at it, right? Because ultimately you could say sanctification is monergistic because any desire that you had to be sanctified in the first place to work this out, all the means that have been given to you are of God. Um, but you can also look at it synergistically in the sense of you are, you are the one prosecuting this, uh, this uh, life by God's help. So if you wanted to look at it that way, yes, you could say that it's synergistic. <laughs> Tracy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Yep. It just depends on what frame you're you're looking at it from. So uh, still got two minutes. Um, this wasn't a question on the sheet, but I felt it needed to be asked. When will we be completely sanctified? Is it in this life? Is it achievable in this life? At glorification. At glorification. Exactly. We will ultimately be completely sanctified, holy, but it is, uh, it's not yet. Hebrews 12, 22 through 20, excuse me, uh, 12, 22 through 23. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable uh, company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect." Spirits of just men made perfect. We will be made perfect in heaven. And then 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 42 and 43. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So right now we are in our corrupt flesh. We will be raised in corruption. We will not be able to fall. We will be perfect in that sense. Um, we, we are currently in weakness. Our body is sown in weakness. We will be raised in power. We will have the ability to be perfectly righteous and honor God as he should be honored. 
and that's uh, that's a wonderful thing to um, to keep in mind. All right, with that, any other questions before we close? All right, in that case, uh, let's close with the word of prayer.